Grace and peace are yours from God our Father, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Sermon text that we have before us is the account of the rich young ruler from Mark chapter 10. We hear verses 17 through 27. Please rise as we hear these words in Jesus' name. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, one man ran up to him and knelt in front of him. He asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except one, God. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, Teacher, I have kept all of these since I was a child. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack, go sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he looked sad and went away grieving, because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus told them again, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in their riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to one another, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For people... It is impossible, but not for God, because all things are possible for God. And we pray. Heavenly Father, teach us today to see how needy we are, how impossible it is for us to do anything to be saved. Help us to instead see and rejoice in you for the salvation that you freely give to us as your children and heirs. Amen. Please be seated. The intention of this young man's question was good. When he comes up and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man was concerned about eternal life. He was concerned about the eternal outcome of his soul. And that's a good thing. I wish more people had this concern. I think... If more people had this concern, our world would look like a different place. Now, Jesus, of course, he was concerned about this young man's soul. Jesus was concerned about the eternal life that this young man desired. And so he responds to him. And he, first of all, picks up on a a word that that young man uses when he addresses Jesus. He says, good teacher. That word, good, when translated into English... That word in the original language, it was really a word that usually wasn't applied to people. It was applied to the goodness that really only God had. It was referring to a divine, perfect goodness. And Jesus picks up on this in our text. He says, hey, you are calling me good. You know, there's only one who is good. And that, of course, is God. What exactly is it that you're implying about me? Jesus then immediately points out the kind of goodness 
that is necessary if someone wants to have eternal life to get to heaven. He says to the man, you know the commandments. Don't murder, be sexually pure, don't steal, don't give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. God has already told you everything that you need to do for eternal life. Follow the law, follow God's commands. To which the young man says, great, I've done all of that since I was a young boy. I should be good to go then, right? But Jesus responds, and he responds lovingly, with compassion, with concern, but also brutally, honestly, he says, you are still lacking. The goodness that you need in order to be saved, you don't have it. Jesus, of course, we know, is the second person of the triune God. He is the Son of God, God the Son. Jesus has the divine supernatural ability and power to look into the heart of this young man, and he sees the very specific struggle, the specific sin that this young man has within him. And Jesus lovingly, in answer to his question, pulls that out into the open. When he says to him, go, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. What was the reaction of that young man? He was crushed. He went away despairing and sad. And sad. Instead of going and happily getting rid of all of his things and going to follow Jesus, he goes away sad because he had great wealth that he was unwilling to depart or to part with. Our Lord Jesus here, he challenged and he confronted this young man with a brutally honest answer to his question. What must you do? Well, the fact is, you've already failed to do it. You are found lacking. Here, this young man thought he had kept all of the commandments, but Jesus points out to him that he had failed to keep the very first commandment. So Jesus was really asking this young man, who is your God? Who do you trust in to protect you and to keep you happy? What is it that your heart relies upon, that your heart depends upon? Whatever that thing is, that is your God. And if that God is not the true God, well, then you do not have what it takes to earn eternal life, to achieve it, to have it for yourself. For this specific young man, his God was his wealth. When faced with a choice between God and his wealth, he was unwilling to part with his earthly things. He was possessed by his possessions. And that's really what Jesus is getting at when he's talking about rich people here in our text. It's not about what you might possess, but whether those things possess you. Martin Luther, he once called money, property, and possessions the most common idol on earth. And that should scare us, especially you and me. 
living here in America in 2022, you and I, we live with incredible wealth, the likes of which has never been seen before in world history. And the devil has so blinded us that we take this completely for granted. Instead, we point at other people and we say, no, I'm not wealthy. They're better off than we are. But we aren't going hungry. We aren't freezing to death. Even in Minnesota in the winter, we have vehicles that can transport us across vast distances and short periods of time. We have supercomputers in our pockets where we can connect with people on the other side of the world instantly. We have disposable income. How preposterous is that? You and I, we are so wealthy that we have money that we haven't even spent yet. We have such comfortable, enjoyable lives. And Satan loves to try and use this to cause us to struggle in the same way that this rich young man struggles, to have this serious struggle, to even despair when we are faced with the choice of whether we are going to go with our lives of luxury or to go with God. And maybe it's not your possessions, maybe it's not the cushy life, but there is something else. What is that thing in your life that if Jesus came and he confronted you about, if he was brutally honest with you and he challenged you to get rid of it, to depart from it, what is that thing that, that he would say that would cause you to go away sad and despairing? Maybe it is money and possessions. Maybe it's a certain pet sin that you have that you know is wrong, and yet you enjoy it, and so you hold on to it. Maybe it's a grudge that you refuse to give up, that you keep holding on to against that one person. Maybe it's that excuse that you make that gives you this feeling that you're entitled then to defy God or to go against what God's word clearly says. Whatever it is, God looks into your heart, just as Jesus looked into the heart of this young man, and he tells you and me a brutally honest, hard answer, you are still lacking. If we are asking, what must I do to have eternal life? The answer is, as Jesus points out, too late. You failed can a camel go through the eye of a needle? With people, this is completely impossible. You have put things before God in your life. Fact is, you have bowed down to idols. You are found lacking. And so you are unable to do anything to earn for yourself, to achieve for yourself eternal life. And that's hard to hear, isn't it? especially when we work really hard to be good people, to show love to our neighbors and show love to God. Hearing this brutally honest answer, it could cause us to want to walk away in sadness and despair or to be in shock as the disciples were when they asked, who then can be saved, Lord? Is that it? Are we just totally lost and without any hope? Glory be to Jesus for the closing words of our text. 
He points out that though eternal life is impossible for us to achieve, it is not impossible for God to achieve. Because all things are possible for God. Our Savior here is saying to us, there is nothing, there's nothing that you can do. Simply have a trust and faith in me and in what I do for you. Go back to the very first words that that young rich man spoke to Jesus. He asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Really, it's a silly question. The question doesn't make any sense. It's like an oxymoron. You know an oxymoron back from your your days in English class? Two terms that are put together that have opposite meanings, like jumbo shrimp or old news, or awfully good. In this question that the young man asks, he puts two opposing terms together when he says, what must I do to inherit? It doesn't work that way. Doing or earning is the opposite of inheriting. It's not about actively doing something, but instead it's about passively receiving something. You inherit something simply because of your status as a child or as an heir. The person that is, that is, the person that, uh, is giving you those things, that person that you are inheriting these things from, that person is making a choice to freely give those things to you. It's not about what you do. And this is how eternal life works. You and I, we inherit eternal life. We don't do anything for it. It is given to us simply because of God's loving choice, because we are his children, because we are his heirs. Jesus emphasizes this in our text especially when he turns to his disciples and and he addresses them. Did you catch the term that Jesus used in our text? What did he call his disciples? He called them children. Now, that's not meant to be an insult. Oh, you simple, weak-minded little ones. No. Instead, it's a reminder that they don't rely on doing, but on inheriting. And there's also an important tie-in here with our text with the section just before our text. In Mark chapter 10, right before this young man walks up to Jesus, in Mark 10, verses 13 through 16, we hear the account of the young children who were coming to Jesus, like we see in our stained glass window. The disciples, of course, were saying, no, shoo, get away. What can you possibly offer Jesus? But what does Jesus say? He says, no, let the little children come to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Whoever will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The emphasis, the emphasis is on receiving the kingdom of God with a childlike faith and trust. That's the emphasis of of, uh, that section before our text. It rolls right into our text. The same thing. It's not about going out and trying to do or to achieve or to earn the kingdom of God. Eternal life is freely given to those who are opposite of rich, who are the opposite of earners and doers and achievers. 
The kingdom of God is freely given to those who admit that they are needy, spiritually needy. And that's what we are, dear friends. You and I, today, throughout our service, we have professed this very thing. In fact, this is reflected in every single part of our church service. I challenge you to go home later and circle in the bulletin every part of our service that reflects this very thing, that we are saying, Lord, I need your help. Like in the confession of sins, we're coming before God. God, I'm fleeing to your infinite mercy. Or in the Kyrie, Lord, have mercy upon us. Or even in our lessons today, this was the emphasis In our Old Testament lesson, we were encouraged to fear the Lord our God. He is your God who performed for you these great and awesome things. Who's the one doing the work? It's all about God and what he has done, not us. Or as Paul was emphasizing in our epistle lesson, Christ was established in you. He will keep you strong until the end. God called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, where is the emphasis in all of these places? And for us as Christians, it's not upon what we do. The emphasis is all on what he is doing for us. The same thing goes when it comes to baptism or to the Lord's Supper. These all come from God to us. It's about what he is doing. He's the one doing all the work that leads to our salvation. We simply inherit it. It's given to us because of our status as children of God, as heirs of God. And this is the point that Jesus was making to that rich young ruler and to his disciples and also to you and me today here in this lesson. And so you and I, dear friends, we turn to Jesus and we proclaim he is one who is good. Good in the sense that we heard earlier in our text, divinely good. Jesus is totally, perfectly, divinely good and righteous in every way. There is nothing found lacking in him. Our Savior never once bowed down to any idol. And glory be to Jesus for this because he earned the goodness, the righteousness that it takes to get to eternal life. He earned it. He did it. And he shares it. He shares it freely with all who trust in him. We also turn to our Savior Jesus when we recognize our needs, when we recognize our idolatries, when we recognize that we have sinned. We are guilty of pushing God aside in favor of other earthly things. We turn to Jesus, and he takes all of those idolatries, all of those sins with him to the cross. Again, it's not what we do. It's by his work, his effort, by his death on the cross that has paid for all of our idolatries for our sins. Eternal life is now so simple and easy. As Paul said to the Philippian jailer, simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and I, we come before before Jesus and we say, Lord, I am needy. I screw up. I have been found lacking before you and I know this. Have mercy on me. And what does Jesus say to you and to me? He says those beautiful words that he spoke to the thief on the cross next to him. You will be with me in paradise. Eternal life belongs to you. 
because I am giving it to you. God does the impossible, and we see that especially on Easter morning. When the stone was cast aside from the grave, and Jesus, he was not there. Instead, he was risen. He was alive. You and I, we look at Jesus' resurrection, and we now say, amen. God can, in fact, do what is impossible. The power and glory belongs to him. And this also includes raising us someday out of our own graves, giving us new eternal life. Do we have the power to do that? Absolutely not. But we have a God who is for us, who has promised to do that very thing for us, for all who put their hope, their faith in Jesus Christ. So go back to that question. Who then can be saved? Don't go away in despair or in sadness. Instead, see that the answer to the question is you. You are saved. Even though you and I, we know that, that we should be found lacking, you and I, we know that we are needy. We admit that. And we turn to a loving God who saves us, who saves us through his son, Jesus. He has made us his children. He has made us his heirs. That's what baptism is all about. We are reborn now as his own as heirs of eternal life. And we come and we gather here in this place for the specific reason of hearing not what we are to do, but to hear of everything that he has done for us to have eternal life. Rejoice, dear friends. Rejoice in the fact that you have for yourself everything that Jesus has done for you to be saved. All glory be to him. Amen.